0: We actually have some handouts at the bookstall. I didn't get any laughs out of that. I mean, it's the 21st century. Just a sympathy laugh. I mean, I know you you have smartphones. Uh, so if you go through the tunnel turn to the left there's a, a book stall area on there you'll have the the Sunday night theology handout uh, you can just see everybody who's coming for the rest of 2022 we'd love for you to come uh, this is always free and open to the public uh, perhaps you know of other people who might not be willing to come on a Sunday morning to be here uh, or to your church on a Sunday morning but they might uh, be blessed by coming to hear one of these topics engaged on a Sunday evening uh, we'd love for you to be able to bring them and to engage them and especially if you're not a member of our church and a member members of our church have heard me say this, this is a great way for you to engage an unbeliever or a skeptical friend to say, hey, why don't we go learn about this together, and then let's go to coffee afterwards or to dinner afterwards, and let's just talk about what we learned, and you know, this is a great way for you to be able to invest in their life. Even if you're not a member of our church, I'd love to in, uh, encourage you to be able to do that and to be able to engage the people the Lord has placed in your life. If you're not familiar with our building, just a, a few things quickly. Restrooms are to the left here, men's and women's restrooms. Uh, there aren't many of them. You can go. They are yours to use. Uh, but you know, we, just, we have the benefit of having an old building, and we have the curse of having an old building. So you might have to go and wait for a moment, but men's and women's restrooms are over there. There's a single stall and then a men's uh, restroom and the women's restroom. If you just go down the steps and kind of up the steps, uh, you should be able to find it. But if for some reason you can't find the restroom, two of our deacons are out in the foyer area there. They'd be happy to, to make sure that you get to where you need to go. Uh, if you are a pastor of another church uh, in our area or just broadly, would you just stand up real quick? Pastor of another church. They didn't know I was going to do this. All right. Uh, oh, Chuck, you're here. Great. All right. <laughs> Wonderful. Excellent. All right, Chuck, tell everybody your name where you're at. No, you stay. stand up, Joseph. Don't sit down. Uh, Chuck,
1: I'm pastoring a, a church in Kinshaw, VA, Gospel church
0: Community <clears throat> Church. And Chuck, how long have you been in pastoral ministry? Amen. Thank you the for that. <laughs> Introduce yourself. And how long have you been there? Ten years. Ten years, all right. Excellent. Thank you, Alex. So Joseph and Alex. Uh, members of our church in particular please go greet them encourage these uh pastors here Uh, i do have an announcement for everybody uh at this point before i do book giveaways Uh, miriam is at the back she works with ccf she'll be getting an announcement a little while she's put little cards uh, on your seats you can keep the pen uh, but you need to give the card back miriam you want them to fill this out and then leave them at the end of the row okay or do you want me to have guys go by and collect them for you at the end What's that? Perfect. All right, so fill it out. Just leave it in your seat. They will collect it at the end. Uh, Miriam will be coming out, but this will be helpful for CCF to know how to be able to continue to minister to you and to relate to you. Uh, Miriam will come and explain more about the card uh, for you. A few book giveaways that we always end up doing. Uh, Holy Week is approaching Uh, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. If you were here with us, we learned about Holy Saturday. Just a few books that we'll give away before we give some more topic-specific 50 Reasons Jesus Came to to Die by John Piper. Uh, If you've never read this, but you would like to read this and maybe work through this with an unbeliever, 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die or The Passion of Christ by John Piper, if you feel like you would benefit from one of these, you just raise your hand. From our church, any church, these are yours. Great resources for Holy Week, ministering to unbelievers. All right, Eugene, one to Steve. All right, I have two more. Would anybody benefit from these? I also have one. Yes, I have one by Mike McKinley. This goes through Holy Week. Which one do you want? You want this one or this one? You want John Piper, got it. Don't like Mike. All right, we have, we have Mike and John Piper left. Who do you want? You want Mike? All right, there we go. It's Lauren DeSoy. We have John Piper left up here. Nobody wants him. All right, here we go. And Chris, will you just pass it right behind you? The lady right behind you. It's all right, he doesn't need it. He does, he, he's a Michigan fan. He doesn't know how to read. He went to Michigan State. He went to Michigan State. He's a real Michigan State fan. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you like Michigan. So uh, we have a couple books specific for this evening. Catherine, Catherine Green, McCrate: Darkness is My Companion, a Christian Response to Mental Illness. Uh, I know that all of you are here for this topic in particular, but if you feel like you would benefit and you would read this book in 2022, this book is yours. All right. To our brother in the back, Tim. Remind me your name. Hey. Ted. Ted. Yeah. All right. And then Katie. All right. I have two copies of Mike Imlet's Descriptions and Prescriptions. Uh, Mike is another faculty member at CCEF. If you feel like you'd read this and you'll read it in 2022, uh, this book is yours. You don't have to give a report, but you just have to commit to reading the book. All right, they're pointing to you. Are you allowed to receive this? Okay, there you go. Uh, (laughs) All right, we we have one more. All right, to Huck, if you give that to him. Excellent. Now, I would like to. I left my phone. Todd is a faculty member at CCF. Uh, you've been there for how long?
2: I've, I've been there since 2005. Faculty member since 2013.
0: Uh, been there since 2005. Faculty member since 2013. Did a, a PhD at Immaculata. Has three daughters. Uh, married to, uh, well, has a wife. Uh, <laughs> married to his wife, that is true as well. Uh, Todd has come to help us think about mental illness uh, in the local church. One of the reasons I asked Todd is that even a few years ago, just due to some of the discipleship issues we were facing in our church, I realized that pastorally, I myself and our elders were were ill-equipped to think about uh, mental illness and how do we relate to those who are struggling with mental illness in a variety of different ways in the context of the church as it relates to their discipleship and their care? And then the situations maybe when discipline might be a part of that. And so that put on my radar to say, we need to learn and to think about this issue better. I've invited Todd to come and to be with us. I'm going to pray for him. And then what we'll do is he will teach. And then we will take time for Q&A at the end. There will be microphones, so you'll raise your hand. We'll bring a microphone to you. uh, And then the Lord will conclude our time. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to come and to be here tonight. It is a delight to be with the people of God, to to hear one another sing, and to encourage one another by our presence this evening. Uh, We remind ourselves regularly when we gather on Sunday evenings, not only is there this wonderful privilege to learn, but there comes this responsibility to steward what we're learning this evening for the good of other people, not just ourselves. We pray in the variety of relationships that we have in our lives. Uh, Some friends, some spouses, some kids, some nieces and nephews— neighbors, colleagues, coworkers, people we're discipling, people that we're investing in, those we're evangelizing, that you would help us to refine uh, our thinking tonight uh, so that we might be able to not only think more rightly, but to be able to communicate the gospel more helpfully, more compassionately, more tenderly, more compellingly for the good of others and the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus Christ and what he did for us As we prepare for Holy Week and uh, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Christ, we pray that you would stir our affections afresh, uh, that we might give all glory and praise to the Lord Jesus. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. Todd, would you come?
2: Thanks, Raymond. Raymond, are my notes over there?
0: Yeah, right. you need those. I do. Thank you.
2: I'm not that good of a speaker. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. It is a privilege to be here. I'm going to talk about the local church and mental health today. And it's, that is the title, and I am going to go about getting to the local church through the back door of first, going through the category of biblical flourishing. It's important to me to think about what flourishing is for us as Christians, for those of us who have a mental health condition or those of us who don't, flourishing is going to be the same. It's the same categories that we're going to work with, and so I want to talk about that. So it means that we're actually going to move from something a little bit more philosophical, then to something a little bit more theological, and then more practical. So we will move towards the practical, but as you hear me talking about flourishing, it's it's a bit of a theological philosophical category first and then we can talk about applying it. So here's an overview of what we will be covering tonight. First I'm going to answer the question what is biblical flourishing? Second, I'll get more specific, and we'll consider how the church can help people with mental health conditions flourish. And then, finally, I'm going to offer two considerations regarding mental health in a local church as it relates to some practical pastoral application. Let's begin by answering the question, what is biblical flourishing? A great synonym for flourishing is thriving. Another one is well-being. In in our world and in our culture, there is a clash of visions for what flourishing looks like and how one goes about trying to achieve it. What is, in fact, vital to our well-being? What is essential to our thriving? And how does Christianity shape our understanding of this? I'm proposing that if we know what true flourishing is, we'll have some clarity as to what we're supposed to be as people. We'll have clarity as to what the church is called to, and we'll have some clarity as to how to care for individuals who live with a mental health condition. Our first goal tonight is to come to a conclusion about what biblical flourishing is as the rest of the presentation is going to be built on that. The way that I'm going to answer that is by first answering three prerequisite questions. And you know how in math class, it wasn't only about getting the right answer, it was about being able to show your work. And that's part of what I want to do today. As we, I don't want to just answer what is biblical flourishing, I want to make sure you see how I'm getting... To that definition. And the answer to these prerequisite questions will be based, will be the basis by which we come to our ultimate answer. The prerequisite questions are first, what is real? Second, what does it mean to be human? Third, what keeps us from flourishing, and then, finally, we'll be able to establish what is biblical flourishing. But first, what is real? How often do you find yourself asking this question or wondering, what is the structure of reality? Probably not very often, I would guess. This isn't an everyday question. However, in the big picture of pastoral care and counseling ministry, it is, in fact, an essential one. Most questions pertain to human nature, human problems, and their solutions. They will necessarily trace themselves back to having a position on what exists and in what fashion. For the Christian, reality can be broken down into three basic parts. The material, the immaterial, and the covenantal. And I'll look at each of those in turn. These three categories, material, immaterial, and covenant, you will see that they work their way through each of these categories, each of these questions. Material reality or the material dimension of creation just means that something consists of physical matter. Material reality takes up space, it's measurable, and it acts upon our senses. Immaterial reality refers to something that has no physical substance. And while the material universe is revealed to us through our senses, our awareness of immaterial things comes from either our reflection, our philosophical reflection, or through divine revelation. For example, things like consciousness, or truth, or suffering, these are immaterial realities. They are real, but we can't touch them, or weigh them, or test them. And the scriptures reveal to us that immaterial reality also consists of things like human souls, angels, demons, and most importantly, God himself. And this third component of reality is covenant. Covenantal reality is a relationship. This covenantal dimension of reality is God's intimate and ultimate connection to all things. All creation exists at all times and at every level in relationship with its creator. All things receive their existence, their sustenance, and their meaning from God, whether it's a feather a baby boy, the moon, angels or demons, or a chemical reaction. Everything has a direct relationship to God. The graphic that you see on the screen is my attempt just to give you an illustration of the structure of reality from a biblical perspective. Now, I had to put God a little smaller than we would like just to to emphasize the other portions, but just assume he's bigger than that. God is, so notice this, God is separate from creation and yet relationally connected to it by means of covenant. Creation includes both material and immaterial things. Again, These are bound up in covenantal relationship with the Creator, who is the sustainer, the governor, and the redeemer of all things. That's our first prerequisite question. What is real? The second prerequisite question is, what does it mean to be human? And this takes its cues from the first one. Similar to our question concerning the makeup of reality, how we answer this question of human nature has profound implications on how we think, how we act, and how we help other people. The reason this is important is that it's a question about what we're made of and how we work. Flourishing, as we define it, is going to be connected to what we're made of and how we work. As God's creational masterpiece, the Scriptures identify human beings as the image of God in Genesis 127. No other creature is given such a title. No other creatures are said to have the breadth of God within them. They are made, and we are made, in His image and in His likeness. In its most stripped-down form, the image of God in man and woman entails three aspects. Covenantal relationship with God and our material and immaterial parts. We are body and soul. While our body and soul are distinct, they are not separable. We cannot neatly separate out what is bodily experience and what is soulish experience. We operate and function seamlessly as an embodied soul and as a whole person. And just to give you a, to put a pin in this, we will talk about this later, but this has relevance as we think about mental health diagnoses and conditions. We cannot neatly separate out what is bodily experience and what is soulish experience. Let's talk about these three, covenant, material, and immaterial. First, we are covenantal beings. Humans are in covenantal relationship with God. Like the rest of creation, our existence is firmly situated within covenant, with God as our macro environment, our primary relationship. Every human being is either on the right side of this covenant are on the wrong side of this covenant. We are either in relationship to God as covenant keepers or as covenant breakers. Those who have embraced Christ's redemptive life and death are in good and right covenantal standing with God, while those who have rejected him are on the wrong side of the covenantal relationship. We are covenantal beings. We are also material beings, humans have a body. The human body is the visible and material part of our being. It is through our bodies that we have a reliable connection to the physical world. And then, thirdly, we are immaterial beings. Humans have a soul. For men and women, our covenantal relationship with God is a dynamic one. Because we have a soul, we are active worshipers by nature And this is in contrast to the rock or the planet or the cat or the red maple, which have no soul. It is a static relationship. Humanity's moment-by-moment experience is either lived in faith to God or in unbelief and rebellion, either turning towards him constantly or turning away from him and avoiding him. The graphic here depicts our distinctly Christian conceptualization of human nature. You can see the continuity between the composition of the cosmos and the composition of human beings. In a sense, human beings exist as a microcosm of the whole creation. First of all, similar to the structure of the cosmos, human beings exist within covenantal relationships with God, as we see with the gold box. God is our ultimate environment. Humanity's covenantal environment is portrayed here by the large orange rectangle. Secondly, like the cosmos, humans consist of material and immaterial parts. And to portray this, The graphic uses a smaller rectangle to depict our distinct but separate body soul essence. And the gradations of shading are meant to capture the fact that we are intermingled of body and soul. Our third prerequisite question what keeps us from flourishing? So to arrive at a definition of biblical flourishing, we're going to come at it through the back door. By considering humanity's predicaments or problems, what is wrong or what is broken, we can set the stage to think about how things are supposed to be and how things are supposed to work. The Bible identifies humanity's problem as consisting of three things. Separation, sin, and suffering. Our first problem is that we are separated from God. This is our covenantal problem. At creation, human beings were in perfect relationship to God. However, as sin entered the world, humanity's covenantal relationship with God, changed. Humanity moved from being in right standing with God to wrong standing. This is humanity's ultimate predicament, and it's the most severe of human pathologies. Separation from God. That's the first thing that keeps us from flourishing. The second thing is our second or our second problem is that we are embattled by sin. And this is our immaterial, or our spiritual problem. Humanity's predicament of sin is a predicament of the soul. Sin is a personal affront to a personal and holy God, and it takes the form of transgression and shortcoming, idolatry and indifference. Sin remains and continues to threaten our well-being and flourishing, whether we are Christian or non-Christian. And then our third problem is that we are afflicted by suffering. This is our material or our bodily problem. Whereas sin is humanity's soulish predicament, suffering is our bodily one. While separation affects our covenantal standing with God and sin affects our relationship with God, suffering impacts our relationship with ourselves. It reflects our relationship with others and it reflects our relationship to the world around us. This picture just gives you an idea of how these three problems... Separation as a covenantal problem, sin as a soul and immaterial problem, suffering as a bodily and material problem, how they move us in a direction opposite of flourishing. These are the three things that keep us from flourishing. So it leads us to our final question that we need to talk more about mental health and the church, and that is, what exactly does flourishing look like? After asking these prerequisite questions, we finally get to consider biblical flourishing, and at this point, you can probably see the answer coming. In a logical fashion, the polar opposite of humanity's three predicaments or problems lead us to three forms of flourishing. Instead of separation and sin and suffering, we have salvation. We have sanctification, and we have blessing. Salvation is covenantal flourishing. Humanity's ultimate predicament is resolved by the good news of Jesus Christ. Salvation restores humanity's covenantal relationship with God. It proclaims us as sons and daughters of God, and it removes us, it removes from us the status of enemy and rebel. Covenantal flourishing or salvation. Is the movement from the wrong side of the covenant to the right side of a covenant with God? Sanctification is spiritual flourishing or immaterial flourishing. Because humanity's soul problem lies in idolatry and unbelief and disobedience, our soul's flourishing entails the pursuit of righteousness holiness, obedience, and repentance. The pursuit of these things is the pursuit of sanctification. And finally, blessing. Blessing is bodily or material flourishing. So if salvation is the opposite of humanity's covenantal predicament, and sanctification is the opposite of humanity's sin predicament, then blessing is the opposite of humanity's suffering predicament. And blessing is anything that contributes to reducing someone's suffering, enlarging someone's opportunities, expanding someone's capabilities, improving someone's circumstances and bettering someone's health. Let me read that one again. Blessing is anything that contributes to reducing someone's suffering, enlarging someone's opportunities, expanding someone's capabilities, improving someone's circumstances, and bettering someone's health. This This is our answer to the question, what is biblical flourishing? A biblical vision of flourishing includes salvation, sanctification, and blessing. This is going to be our standard for Christian well-being and for thriving. And this is what the church is called to, all three aspects of Christian flourishing. And it's how we must conceptualize our care for others. With a biblical conceptualization of flourishing as our backdrop, we can begin to move into questions surrounding mental health and the local church. How does the church care for those living with a mental illness? We already know that the answer is to help them flourish. But what form does this take? The church's care is going to take the form of good news and good works. That second one May feel a little strange, so just wait until I explain it. First, good news. The church offers good news to those living with mental illness. First and foremost, for the individuals who live with a mental health condition, the good news of Jesus Christ saves and it sanctifies. This dimension of human flourishing is available. And is possible, even when living in distress, suffering, and disability. God's commitment to redeeming and growing his people extends to all individuals in all situations, facing all struggles, challenges, or limitations. And what is more, the good news... What is more, the good news not only forms and transforms us, but it also helps, and it is the helpfulness of the good news that is particularly meaningful for those with mental health conditions. For these individuals, the good news of Jesus Christ is a lamp unto their feet and a light unto their path and it is the rock that is higher than I. As Psalm 119.05 just proclaims, the good news reveals and clarifies reality. And as Psalm 61.1 highlights, the good news is an authoritative reference point when one cannot trust themselves. The good news helps as it gives certainties, it anchors identity, it offers comfort, and it provides purpose as individuals face the unreliability or the limitations of their senses or of their emotions or their cognitions. Here are three examples of how the Word of God, how the good news Of Jesus Christ clarifies, reorients, and grounds. Take Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is reorienting in that it lays out the posture of God towards his people, it lays out the true relationship of their sin to how God feels about them. It is a radical reminder that for those in Jesus Christ, God's posture towards them is not connected to their sin or their iniquity. While this psalm is not a silver bullet against intrusive and condemning thoughts, it nevertheless is a formidable reference point that's hard to contend with or those thoughts must contend with. Take 1 John 3.20. 1 John 3.20 is instructional. In what can seem like a throwaway comment, John proposes that our feelings and interpretations can be unreliable. He comments, When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. It instructs, it instructs us that there can be a discrepancy between what we feel and think and what is actually true. For example, just because we feel strongly that God hates us or that we are not a Christian, it does not necessarily mean it's accurate. The theological, this theological truth opens the door for individuals to question the validity and the reliability of what they feel and to instead consider what the Scriptures might be clearly saying. And let's take Revelation 3, verse 8. Revelation 3, verse 8 is, a, is another reorienting passage. It offers an alternative way of viewing things, a way that challenges one's sticky thoughts. Revelation 3 is the letter to the church of Philadelphia, the letter to a church that can only do so much. In a sense, the church is doing the best that they can with what they've been given and what they are up against. The church of Philadelphia has limited strength, limited control, yet they are commended for being full of faith. This passage offers a reorienting understanding of faithfulness amidst of our limitations and our weaknesses, and it pushes back against an unrealistic standard, and it allows for messy lives, imperfect faith, and imperfect people. The helpfulness of the good news is an essential part of the church's role in helping individuals with mental health conditions flourish. The church offers good works to those living with mental illness. I'm not talking about the kind of good works that earn favor or merit righteousness in the eyes of God, but the kind that is meant to be a natural fruit and consequence of being the people of God. Here are some passages that highlight this provision to God's people that is offered through the church. Romans 15, 1 through 3, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So then, as we have the opportunity, this is Galatians 6, 9, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Titus 2, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And the saying is trustworthy. Again, Titus 3. The saying is trustworthy, and I want to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The church has as it as sorry, the church has at its disposal the ability to bring about significant bodily flourishing to people. The church has at its disposal the ability to bring about blessing to people. The local church wants to see people flourish in every aspect of their life. And to the extent that we can contribute to that, we should endeavor to respond. After all, we as Christians have the best reasons for mobilizing and engaging in the lives of others, for giving of ourselves, for reducing suffering and burdens, meeting tangible needs, and seeking the enrichment and the blessing of others. Here are three examples of what good works towards those with mental health conditions might look like. First, be inclusive. To be included is to become fully human. Whether it's actively including individuals into your circle of family and friends, your church community, your ministry program, A person with mental health conditions will flourish most in community and in inclusive relationships. Second, be an advocate and support. Without a doubt, those with mental health conditions will need an advocate. Due to the nature of mental health diagnosis, an individual might not be in a position to articulate or even perceive their own needs. Someone must speak on their behalf to protect and champion his or her dignity and value, to give voice to needs and interests. Advocacy is often instrumental in tracking down and securing the necessary services and supports and addressing tangible everyday needs. And finally, the third example, be a learner. Learn about mental health conditions. Christlike compassion and care will compel the local church to be an active student of the experience of individuals with mental health conditions. Continue to seek information gain knowledge, learn as much as you can, become aware and educated. As a result, the church's care will be more and more intelligent, charitable, and strong. The church has essential things to offer those who live with mental health conditions as it can substantially contribute to the flourishing of his or her body and soul. And lastly tonight I want to highlight two pastoral considerations. The first is this, and this is a it's a run-on sentence, but I just tried to get as much information in as I could. Mental health problems are real and complex, and we don't have to try and decipher them. Mental health problems like anxiety, depression, bipolar, PTSD are real, these are actual forms of suffering and psychiatric diagnoses are extremely helpful in organizing this experience of disordered and distressing thoughts and emotions and behaviors into valid and meaningful categories mental health problems are real while they are there are important critiques on the limitations of the mental health diagnoses and the problems with the mental health system, these descriptions do a good job of capturing an extremely complex human experience. And the reason for this complexity, and I pointed this out early on in the presentation, is that not only do we exist as an embodied soul with no clear separation between what is body and what is soul in our experience. They cannot be ultimately pulled completely apart. So not only that, but mental health struggles actually straddle both the body and the soul. Simultaneously, mental health conditions are both body and soul conditions. They are real and they are complex. And so what this can instinctively lead to is a knee-jerk response by anyone in the middle of this complexity is to try and make it more manageable and understandable. So as a church, we can be tempted to try and untangle mental health diagnoses and attempt to figure out which part of the diagnosis belongs to the body and which part belongs to the soul. We can feel compelled to decipher the configuration and determine what of this is biological and what of this is spiritual? What of this is weakness and what of this is sin? While the reasons for attempting to do so are usually good intended, intentioned, it more often than not proves to be fruitless and potentially harmful. So it leads us to just a few suggestions. That's just to give you a look. Remember, body and soul, there is, a, there is a space where it's just really hard to try and decipher out where does the body end and the soul start, where does the soul start and the body end. Mental health conditions land mostly in that area. In light of this complexity, this complexity keeps us humble. It forces us to keep things simple, to work to reduce suffering, to help to fight sin and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. In the middle of this complexity, the goal is to treat individuals like you would treat anyone else. Given enough time and given a safe and trusting relationship, the things that are sin and the things that are suffering will eventually make themselves known. Over time, this knee-jerk reaction to try and decipher out where things land, over time they will just show themselves for what they are, given a relationship of trust and given time. And the third one, probably the most important, in light of mental health diagnoses being real and being complex, as a family member, as a pastor, as a counselor, as a member of the congregation, you should assume suffering before you assume sin. You should assume they can't before you assume they won't and assume weakness before rebellion. Mental health problems are real and complex and we don't have to decipher them. Our our second pastoral consideration. Refer in rather than refer out. Referring in is a tongue-in-cheek way of challenging us to rethink and reframe how we envision the church's role in mental health care. It's not meant to challenge the wisdom of utilizing resources outside the church. That's not what this is meant to do. Rather, it's meant to challenge the form that that organizing takes. Because our understanding of human flourishing involves prioritizing our faith and our faith community, we want this to be reflected in the way that we organize our systems of care. So instead of the church being one of many resources, one of many specialists, like a spoke on the wheel. We wanted to operate as the home base of the individual's support system, as an integral part of the hub of the wheel instead of a spoke. Just an illustration of this. Referring out, it can feel like the church can be a spoke on the one of the resources, one of the specialists, one of the multidisciplinary teams. We want to keep all those teams, we want to think about referring in as just the hub is the individual or the family and the church family creates the safe home base for that system. the phrase refer-in is meant to capture a different way of organizing how specialists and experts fit in, how they fit in related to the individual and the church family. Within this paradigm, specialists and multidisciplinary teams are invited into the pre-existing care system made up of the individual and their church family. To give you three final thoughts related to this idea of referring in. This paradigm that I'm talking about will be the product of a church that takes an active interest in mental health issues. It normalizes their presence in the lives of Christians, both from the pulpit and in their ministries. And subsequently, it invites a congregation to allow them into the care process. It asks to be allowed in. Second, this paradigm will also be the result of individuals and families who are willing to entrust themselves to the church community and to take the risk of being vulnerable and being known. Two sides of the coin. And this paradigm is less about the church needing to weigh in on every decision. And it's more about the individual with mental health conditions and their families being known, being supported within their complexity of the diagnosis, of the heartbreak, of the decisions, and of the hardships. Let me just close with this this final thought, and then we can do some questions and answers. In closing, let me end with this. The local church has the opportunity and the offerings to be an integral part of the flourishing of individuals with mental health conditions. It will not be easy, and it will not be straightforward but it is possible, and it is necessary. Let me just pray for us a minute.
0: Um, Also, if you have a question, I want you to just go ahead and raise your hand and keep it up, and a mic will eventually come to you. Todd, thank you for your lecture. Maybe just kind of a a first question. Um, Could you help us think about, especially uh, those of us members of churches (laughs) serving as pastors, elders of churches, how does that teaching, like, the, the active involvement of the church and the, the patients, I love that idea of uh, assuming suffering before sin, et cetera, right, weakness before rebellion, how does, how does that work itself out in more egregious sin patterns of mental health uh, when we think of people wrestling with things like borderline personality disorder, or bipolar, that are, that are more destructive? And at least in our case, I'm just admitting now in front of mm-hmm. us, like, we had no idea how to really think about that. And what do we do as elders as we consider them discipline or not how how long to forbear with something to, because what was happening is that often it seemed uh that we were stalling out of okay here's the person and here's the sin and somewhere along the line mental illness makes them kind of not culpable for the things that they're doing I just that's actually part of the reason you're even here tonight of like Mm -hmm. we we didn't know quite how to handle that of what does that even mean Uh, and we know that they're not not culpable but we didn't know quite how to proceed with patience with love and tenderness and and trying to care for the person but also say hey this has to stop this is this is destructive or this is hurting you and other people any wisdom and you can just kind of pick apart or say that's a Mm -hmm. question we'll move on so
2: I think that's the that is going to be the question for pastors and for counselors and family members and loved ones is where where how do we how do we figure out which is which therefore to what extent do we endure do we suffer do we um, do we push back and I think the it just Two thoughts on that. One, I think it can be an open conversation with the individual that that, this, that that you want to do well. You know that this is suffering, that there is bodily component, and you also want to treat them as a human being. And so this will be a process of trying to decipher these things, of thinking about how to call for obedience and repentance at the same time as significant bodily needs and limitations and disabilities are going to get in the way. So that would be the first one is that it can be an open conversation with the person that you're helping. That actually creates uh, a genuine, safe relationship by which change can happen. The other is, I think if there is, if, if we feel like we have been a good, well, here's probably where it comes back to first, is if you feel most, most likely there's both, we need to be a student of both the diagnosis and the person before we are going to be able to accurately talk about these destructive behaviors as something volitional or sin Uh, not that they're not but if you don't know the condition you're not educated on what they're going through and suffering if you're not aware enough about who they are as a person or what they've gone through you're not going to be in a place to speak into those areas of their life regarding sin so it may be there it is likely there somewhere but our work is gonna to be to do the work of having the right to speak into those areas.
0: That's really helpful. All right, we'll take questions from the floor. Lauren DeSoy, Chris Myers, and then Brooke Harner in the back. Okay. Brooke, sorry, Brooke Grant's oh. Sorry, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to say, it's awkward. I just, <laughs> I, just I did, I did the wedding. <laughs>
3: Um, Thank you for being here and talking about this. Um, As I heard you talk about relating in as a church body, and as we attempt to do that, knowing that the well of need in a person like this is so incredibly deep, could you give us some practical ways that we as a church body can say one person alone can't handle that well of pain on their own and it, do you have systems or just practical ways that, that we as a church can come together to try to meet some of those needs
4: mm-hmm.
2: yeah I think it's going to be there's, for example some churches have more resources than they're actually using other churches have few resources, and they are, um, they are being swamped. So if, if a case of a church is, is swamped with needs and few resources, I, I, think, I think we have to be realistic about what our role is um, in, in that regard. And that may be just individuals being known and being prayed for is going to be at least something significant for them in their, in their life and their struggle. We may not be able to meet some of these needs. I think the question becomes, are we, are we aware of them? Are we looking out for them? Do we know what they are? And then we may or may not be able to meet them. But at the very least, it's going to be important that people are known. Their struggles are known. Their challenges are known. Um, ways that we can pray for them, are known. Apart from that, um, there, there is, there's going to be limits to any system of, of meeting the needs of the bodily flourishing in particular, but we have limitless needs or limitless resources of, of knowing and loving and praying that can probably be spread around
5: Um, I just want to say thank you for being here, As long, uh, just echoing what Lauren shared. Um, I have a brother who's been suffering f- and struggling with mental illness for over 25 years. And this is really just to say thank you for bringing up the point that um, God's grace, his mercy, his love for these individuals um, goes beyond what the person in need can comprehend or understand because for so many years myself and my family have been trying to communicate like why don't you understand this why can't you get why can't you grasp God's grace why do you see yourself as just condemned as a sinner and what I want to do is now go and speak with him about it's not about his understanding or not God's grace goes beyond his lack of understanding I don't know if I'm articulating that well but this was was very helpful to be able to to go back to, to my brother with these things
2: yeah, that's a, that's well said. Our our calling is to put these things in front of people winsomely, lovingly, generously, and and know that they may or may not be able to grab them and really encapsulate them. But that's not our job. Our job is to continuously be that presence in the hands and feet. Thanks for saying that. Ted has a mic.
0: Uh, Tim, will you take one over to Brooke, and then is it Steve? All right, and then Steve after that. And Eugene.
6: Okay. Hello. Um, thank God for all Baptist church. About five years ago, they brought this gentleman to our church who was doing mental illness, and we was able to help him out. Uh, for the last eight months, my spouse came down with mental illness, which I had to remove myself from the home and everything else. And um, I don't know how to deal with it, really. Uh, you take people, now I am to mental illness courts, to help other people out, they say, "Well, we'll have an app they can help us to get people get the proper help." They don't even want the app to come into the courtroom. They tell the people, "Do a 201 on yourself, and you could leave out in 72 hours," which the people need more help. And it's, this has to stop, really, letting these people release this stuff. And you've got parents and people that loves these folks, and they say, "Well, just." Put them back out in the street, they'd be out the street for two days. You have to go by do the 302 process again. And one thing they're using in Philadelphia jails instead of hospital jail is not the cure for mental illness. Um, and well, Pennsylvania is the number one state for people who come to, go to school for mental illness. And when they come to school, get the education, they abandon the, the student. They say, Well, I got enough degree, I could go. To another state, make more money, and abandon say a person, and it's, it's it's wrong. Like if I've been working with a person two years, and I put my confidence in, but well, this person put the confidence in a doctor, and the doctor just ups and leaves, it's it's hard on a person. The person put their belief in them, and they started working with the families. We have to work with the families and the mental illness. These these places here in Philly, uh, for instance, I'm just in this hospital on the Boulevard. I can't mention it. They even won't let you go back in the courtroom. And we have to go in the courtroom and find out what's going on with our children, our spouses, and our kids, and of letting these people just throw them back in the street. And that's all I gotta say. So Ted, is your it
0: would it be a little bit of a question of what do we do when there doesn't seem to be adequate resources? No, not
6: at, not at all. It's no resources.
0: Okay, very good. All right. Bro.
3: Um, thank you. I just have a, a like, kind of like a practical question for wisdom. When you spoke about um, in the beginning with biblical flourishing with what is real, um, speak, the question's coming, I guess, more from an angle of anxiety disorder. But just I was just wondering if you had any like steps of practicality. Obviously, there's working with counselors and all of those things. But when we're in the day-to-day, even as brothers and sisters in the church, really trying to get to the bottom of what is real and what is not – And if there's just practical things um, like steps to really try to sift that through as we try to align anxiety with the word of God and what is true, like how to really work through that.
2: That's a a good question. That's a tough one.
3: I Uh, know. It's a loaded one. (laughs) I'm sorry.
2: (laughs) One of the things that I would... This might sound a little simplistic, but sometimes we have to start small with what we what we understand is real. And there can be a lot that we're not sure of, but it's to start it's gonna be to find those those small pieces that either you're convinced of or your friends, your family, your church can help you be convinced of or to find as solid ground. And and we can go as far down as we need to, start as basic as we need to, but find a place to start and start establishing what you can and can't trust in as real, what you believe or don't believe. And then that, that gives you a place to work from instead of trying to go at some of the major categories or just starting small, praying about it, asking asking your friends and your pastor and circle of family to help, and and to, just to, to build a, a reservoir of, of what you're pretty certain of and then as you're struggling to figure out what those other things are, I think that opens up again some of these other resources like the scriptures and the church and counseling. But starting small and then and building on that
0: is a good way to go.
3: That is helpful. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. Am
1: I up? Could you just repeat her question so I so I don't overlap?
0: She was asking for kind of individual things that she or others, kind of in the church, could do to kind of help walk alongside somebody.
1: Okay, thanks. What I'd like to ask you is to bring. I, I appreciate some of those things you put up there, like sin and suffering, covenantal, and then sin and suffering. Let me start my question a little bit with that and then move to a friend, Joe, I have in a distant state Mm -hmm. and try to apply it. Um, Regarding sin and suffering, it seems to me, I I love his question about be sensitive and compassionate and weakness first before you slam them with sin and good stuff. what I'm struggling with is Jesus seemed to be, and Paul, emphasizing the sin, you know, death resulting from sin. Repent and believe in the gospel. For This is the gospel, forgiveness of sins, according to the scriptures, you know what I'm saying? Sin seems so deep. And, and then death and suffering are horrendous, but sort of secondary, I'm wondering. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's important is because I don't know about you guys, but churches like the one I'm in seem to emphasize sin, wrath, cross, repent, and believe, right? And the way I'm thinking, that seems appropriate, but but your compassionate approach is good, too. So um, I don't know if you want to comment, or should I just go on to my friend Joe? Let
0: let him jump in there. So you're wanting to know the relationship between mental illness and the reality of sin, right? Well. Like the severity of sin. The
2: depth of sin. Something to do with sin. <laughs> I, I think I, I, I'm tracking. Let me, uh, I, mm-hmm. let, me, let me give it a shot. Go ahead. Um, I, I would, this is one angle, and you could disagree with this. I would say I take sin so seriously, I want to make sure I can eventually get to it. I don't want to lose that opportunity. And it may take time, and it may mean that we go with suffering first. But I take it so seriously that I want to make sure I can eventually get to it.
0: Would you say that that's a little bit of the difference between maybe the pulpit and kind of a counseling session or even a private discipling session where you maybe have the, the opportunity to work with somebody versus yep. kind of a model?
2: Yes. Okay. yes. Well,
1: well said. Yes, you want to take suffering so seriously that you'll get to the sin and God part, right?
2: Or I take sin so seriously that, that I, I do not want to lose an opportunity yes. to address Yes,
1: <clears throat> and praise God.
0: Um, All right, now Joe, <laughs> your friend.
1: Okay, my friend Joe. Uh, as I mentioned, Joe, what I'm trying to get at is mental health. The, what I'm finding is we come to a difficult, complicated, don't try to decipher everything person. And, well, we need someone who knows what they're doing. Let's give them to the secular people. Now, the reason, that, the reason I'm getting there is my friend Joe right now is in a psychiatric institute for severe crimes. He murdered his sister. But years ago, it wasn't like that. Years ago, he was, had all kinds of stories. He talked to President Clinton about some really important stuff. And he became a messianic rabbi. But only he knew that. Like, he appointed himself. So you can go, oh, well, that's, par- that's paranoia. That's, you know. I, looked at this, I looked at the schizophrenic symptoms and the paranoia symptoms, and I wasn't particularly impressed with the diagnostic manual. right? But what I'm saying about Joe is, I saw so many biblical categories. I saw deception. Pride, boasting, lack of control, violence, thought of himself and not others. I mean, I'm like, wow, fear. The biblical categories that applied to him, maybe in more intense ways, I thought, wow, the biblical categories. And I don't know how much the medication's helping him. So I look at my friend Joe, and so what I'm wondering is First Peter 2. Jesus was reviled, yet he goes to the slaughter like a a sheep, like a lamb, right? I'm wondering with my friend Joe, if compassionately, you know, you're listening to his delusions, you're working with him, but if he could have humbled himself, is there a way, surely a sinful image of God person needs to humble themselves? Could he have done that In such a way he professed Christ he was in church with the Word of God can he repent and change at these core levels so that so that the two things I'm thinking we're misdiagnosing or you know just assuming secular categories but really it's sin or or There is a physiology weakness, and I can't quite figure it out, and I'm going to have compassion. But if the sin can get dealt with through Christ, it could temper. It could lower. So if he's angry, if he's deluded, he's humble, and this stuff Mm -hmm. softens. Does that make sense? And so he's angry Mm -hmm. with his sister, but he's convicted, and he puts the gun away. So that's why the sin-suffering issue is so important to me, and along with the cultural idolatry. Oh, he's The
0: question is getting long. I want to so, give him a second I'm answer. done. Right. I'm done. Sorry. You're good. Thank All you. Right. Sorry. Anything you'd want
2: to say? Yeah, I I think you're hitting something important, which is it, ideally both should be taking place. I think um, yeah, the question is going to be the question is one of of. The question is one of what is the best way to care for an individual, to be able to get to the whole person. And, um, and as, as you see what we talk about flourishing, they're both, are, both need to be there, both the spiritual, the soulish, and the bodily. And uh, if we can, we should be able to try and make sure both are in, are in play.
0: Taylor, who else has a question? Okay, to Dan Rogers here, and then we'll come over to Steve. and then Maxwell, okay, good. Taylor.
3: So I know for some of those who struggle with mental illness, sometimes the church can feel a little bit intimidating where they, one might not feel safe to feel what they're truly experiencing or that everyone else might just be very positive and very joyful, and everything is going well in their lives, and and they just feel a little bit of an emotional burden, not because of anything the church is doing necessarily, but because I think sometimes it can be uh, stigmatized to feel like I have to feel okay, I have to feel joyful when I'm in church, Um, and so what are some practical ways that the church can... Foster that environment of of being known and being a safe place that for those who are really in the midst of a mental mental illness that they feel like that they can um, that they can be included and that they can feel safe to feel what they are truly feeling in the moment and not mask it underneath this um, pressure to feel okay
2: all the time. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Uh, the word the word that comes to mind is. Normalize if, if the, if our if our anxieties, if our if our emotions, if our struggles are normalized as part of the Christian life. If it's being talked about, if if there's uh, opportunities to to gather together, to pray for, to think about to brainstorm about how to help each other, if that becomes part of the, the church culture, then that's going to change how it feels in the pew. If So I think it's going it's to start as a church culture, and it's going to be about really the normalization of the fact that this exists. And this exists in most of us to one degree or another. And... It doesn't have to be stigmatized. If that becomes the atmosphere of a church, it just changes how we, as people, are going to feel in the pew. I think of uh, the passage that I I put up on Romans 3 about the Church of Philadelphia, that the the words that that God said there, I know that you have a little strength. That is a, I get it. This is part of reality. And so the normalization of weakness and disability and limitation—if that is proclaimed and pronounced and okay—then ideally, it's going f- to be a different experience if you're in the pew. Good
0: question. Dan Rogers and then Steve down here,
7: Tim. Uh, to be totally yeah, upfront, I'm, I'm a counselor, so the. Um, it, it's it's a long time in coming, and I, I really thank the, f- the fact that we can start talking about this and be more open because I think the churches in the past have stigmatized a lot of the people that are battling mental health issues, drug addictions, and a number of different things. I, I, many times, I would have somebody say to me, "You say, well, why don't they just stop thinking that way?" You know, that's, that's a tall order because, it, like you said, it, it's so complex about what the brain is doing and what, where their soul is at and, you know, what their thinking is and what their connection with God is. I th- I think the, the church is, you know, this goes, well, you were talking about in, inner church, you know, being kind of the, the, you know, the hub of the wheel and having the spokes out to the side. Those resources that are out to the side are critical that the church investigate those resources, I would imagine. I would take you, would probably agree with that, right? Because if you're just choosing a secular organization as such, you, and, and it is kind of a mix between you know, actual mental health issues and sin issues, well, how are they going to deal with the sin side of that if they don't understand that mm-hmm. piece of it? So I, I think maybe that's probably the next step. Is like, what are the external resources? How are you building, and what are you looking at to investigate that? And how would a church go about that, I guess, was the question.
2: Yeah, good. I, I think if if an individual and their family feel safe, and they feel like the church has their best interest in mind, and the church has some level of education as to how to think about this, they're going to be much more apt to say, can you help me think through these options? I'm not sure about this person or this place, or I'm worried about this. Will you help me prioritize? Will you help me find balance? Will you maybe even go with me to my first appointment? But yes, I think that is exactly what that relationship between the individual and the church can look like and it can change so much.
0: Thank you. Steve? And then who was my other hand? Can I have okay, Bianca. And Maxwell. Okay, Maxwell. Maxwell, Bianca. We're deferring to Bianca. <laughs> Go
8: ahead, Steve. Hey I'm Steve. I'm a drug addict. I have over one year clean. What I'm struggling with now is emotional sobriety. I've cleaned out a lot of sin that I was addicted to in my life. That's pornography, that's drugs, However, sometimes I'm trudging through the day. I, I have a difficulty making decisions. Even coming here was a difficult decision to make. So, you know, I struggle with mental health. I struggle with, you know, whether this is the right thing for me to come here or not.
2: How do I flourish? It sounds like you're taking, where well, you took the first step of that by being here. There, It's not an easy road, but you already know that because you've made so much progress. And that takes a lot of faith and a lot of guts and good work there. But I think the road ahead, like you said, it's... Um, The road ahead to flourishing is going to be a challenging one, and you're going to need people. You also will. You need church. You will need people. You will need the scriptures, and um, yeah, you will need God in this. So this is the first step, or it's one of the first steps. I think you did a good job of coming. I think you know the road ahead is hard, but it's possible.
0: Steve, I appreciate the courage it took to even share that and ask that question. We, we're really glad you're here. You're here this morning. We'll follow up with you some more. That, that was excellent, and that's helpful to us to be able to pull those together and share courageously. Bianca, then Maxwell.
3: Sometimes I struggle um, to know how to couple my faith as a believer and my vocation as a healthcare worker. I have no um, background or training in behavioral health, but um, where I'm working, just due to a lack of resources, we're being asked to take care of a lot of behavioral health patients. And it seems like the knee-jerk reaction of a lot of providers is just to dispense, 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 medicate, medicate, medicate. And I struggle to know where the usefulness um, of prescribing medications would kind of fall into the algorithm that you've laid out for us. So I guess I'm just asking maybe for some helpful tips because I know that there's a role for it, um, but I just struggle to know how to couple that with some of the other
7: suggestions you've given us tonight.
2: Yeah, very good question. Uh, This is a little bit simplistic, but think about the good use of medication brings about relief as opposed to avoids. Sometimes medication actually is for the purpose of avoiding the problem or the difficulty altogether. It eradicates it or puts it out of mind or um, puts you in such a state that you don't need to think about those things. But, I, but there, when relief of symptoms happens, that is a mercy and a grace of God. That is part of that blessing and that bodily flourishing so if relief of symptoms is happening, it is good use. If it is used as a, as a means to avoid, that would be a, a less than ideal use.
0: Thank you. Maxwell?
5: Yeah, thank you again for coming here and uh, speaking to us tonight.
1: Uh, in light of what Christians believe to be real parts of reality, namely uh,
5: immaterial souls, or immaterial spirits that do upon occasion interact with humans? How can we help people um, who believe themselves to be interacting with uh, immaterial entities?
2: The, um, I think I would, There's a lot of things we don't know. And I like to maybe stick with the basics, which is um, we are called, we're called to interact with the people around us. That should not disappear. We are called to love and to pour ourselves out, to give of ourselves and to be in community. So if interacting with the, the immaterial realm takes us out of reality, that's not good. Not because the immaterial reality is necessarily bad, but God has made us as material creatures that have a calling to the material world. The other piece would be, is there any part in which interaction with the immaterial world um, is, does not generate the fruit of the Spirit? If if it's not generating the fruit of the Spirit, then it's just regardless of how beneficial it is, it's not what God is calling us to. So it's less about stay in or stay out of the immaterial world. And, and let's just let's make sure we're aware of what is concretely talked about in Scripture, which is be in community. Love people, give of yourself, and obey Him, and, and bear fruit.
0: You have a variety of... Bible teachers among pastors in here as well. And you've shared a few times of uh, us normalizing, especially from things like the pulpit. Could you maybe just give a couple examples of ways that you've heard it done well, especially for people who aren't specialists? And mm-hmm. I think of like, how do, what do we say beyond, like, hey, your anxiety is real? People have anxiety, like a, a passing comment when you feel like it's beyond your depth to actually dive into that, or depression, or et cetera. What are some things that we could say while teaching yeah. uh, that would help? Do
2: that good question i can imagine that maybe the best place where that would show up is in application of a passage that when when a passage is being laid out to to map onto our lives one of those applications can be and if you are depressed or for those of you who struggle with anxiety right here today This is what this passage says to you. For those of you who do not believe that you are a Christian because of thoughts and experiences of the past, this is what this passage says to you.
0: That's really helpful. Can you all help me thank Todd for his time here with us? Thank you. We have a quick public service announcement. I'm gonna go ahead, Miriam's gonna come up. She's gonna take the podium real quick. Uh, I would like to invite everyone. Our next Sunday Night Theology is on April 24th. It's the last Sunday evening of April. Uh, There's a calendar switch. Deepak Raju was supposed to be with us. He's unable to do so. We're rescheduling him. Uh, He'll be here in early 2023. Keith Whitfield, who was not able to be with us in January, who we had to reschedule, is actually now coming to be with us in uh, April. Keith is uh, the provost at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina. He'll be preaching here in the morning, but in the evening he'll be teaching on uh, evangelization of Muslims and ministering to Muslim peoples and thinking of them in the context of the United States and our our, uh, post-9-11 world. Keith's a faithful brother, so I'd encourage you to be here. Uh, We are thankful that you've come, especially if you're a first-time guest with us. Uh, We are thankful to, to be able to have opportunities like this to be able to try to bridge the gap that sometimes exists between things like the church and institutions like CCF, because we know that you're asking questions, questions like these. And we want to keep doing that at Sunday Night Theology where we're asking questions. Uh, so with that being said, I'd love to invite you back. I'd love to meet you. Todd will be down here, able to, to greet a few of you. Miriam will be at the booth. In fact, should Todd be at the booth? Would that be better? Would that be better? Would you? It be, might be easier for Todd to stand by the booth for a few minutes uh, after as well with Miriam. Uh, so if you have a question that you didn't get to ask, he can speak with you uh, as well. But Miriam, we'll turn it over to you. You give us public service. Wonderful.
4: Up. So my name is Miriam Herzog, and I work at CCF on the advancement team. And I just want to say what a joy it is for me to be here, to be here with Todd. Uh, for me, it's a dream come true to watch these guys in action because we get to see them at CCF. We, some of us have counseled with them, or we've had our lives changed through their ministry So to have him here is just a real huge blessing. Thank you, Todd. Um, You know, it's interesting. I have a sister who's deaf. Um, I have a son who has major learning issues. I had a legally blind roommate. And it felt like God had aligned certain things for me to understand what it meant to come alongside of. And so I appreciate your piece about advocacy, because I think we're very afraid by the things we don't know, we we don't understand psychiatric disorders are very scary if they're scary for, for us can you imagine how scary they are for the person experiencing them so i think that that's what i appreciate about todd's materials tonight is to remind us that we can be an advocate for somebody else and it starts by being a humble learner and asking them questions and knowing their struggle and coming alongside of them being able to advocate for my deaf sister in the church for years has been difficult but it's been so rewarding to get to know her suffering so that's just my little plug for being an advocate and learning how to love others one person at a time, one struggle at a time, and saying, you don't scare me, I'm just like you. My, my struggles might look a little different than yours, but I'm a lot more like you than I am different. That's an Ed Welch special. Um, speaking of Ed Welch and CCF, we ha- actually have a curriculum on psychiatric disorders from our conference in 2011. Todd, you may have had a hand in writing some of that. I don't know. But that is a wonderful curriculum you could go through with your small group, with your Sunday school. Just a plug for that. So essentially, I just wanted to say thank you for tonight because I love this church. You don't know me, but I've been building relationship with you guys through Raymond for, what, six, seven years? Raymond, I don't know how long it's been. So this has been such a a blessing to be with you guys tonight removed to tears by your fellowship and what you're doing here at Sunday Night Theology. I wish all churches did this. It's so powerful. Um, So just want to congratulate you guys for being out tonight, for blessing each other, for coming alongside of Raymond and loving the church. And it's just amazing. Um, So many of you know, and some of you don't know, that CCF is a biblical counseling organization. We've been around over 50 years. We have an on-site counseling center. We also have a school. We teach biblical counseling classes. We have a journal of biblical counseling. Uh, We have all sorts of free resources at ccf.org. You can go to ccf.org and put a word in there, any word. A lot of good stuff will pop up that's free for you. I have additional articles, 10 Ways to Move Towards Somebody Who Has Psychiatric Disorders, written by Ed Welch. There's a lot of good stuff that, that we have that you can utilize and you can read. So I just want to encourage you, stop by the booth, look at the stuff there. Another big plug for me this year is we are in Hershey, PA, at the end of September for our national conference. I'd love to see a huge group from this church come out. Wouldn't that be great, Raymond? Yes. So I think it's ccf.org 22. You can go check out the hyperlink. I do not have a card for you, unfortunately, today. But I would really encourage you guys to come. Make the drive. You might not even need to get a hotel room. you could maybe drive back that night whatever it's it's flexible. We have one day, you could come for the day, really good stuff. You would meet like minded people, biblical counselors, helpers. It is kind of geared towards the helper more than the one who's receiving help, but on the whole, the conference is really just there multiple, multiple subjects, topics um, and our theme this year is wisdom literature, how the wisdom literature helps us in our counseling so uh, that's all I've got, but I do want to let you know we have a drawing tonight. Todd has written a really cool little mini book on schizophrenia, so we have that. We also have the descriptions and prescriptions by Mike Emlent. This is a fabulous one. talks all about the different labels, all the various medications, and what to think of that. So to your question, when you're talking about behavioral health and all the medication stuff, a lot of good stuff in this book on that topic, and we also have a book that is a fabulous book talking about one of your questions about engaging with the spiritual and the, you know, this is called Safe and Sound by David Paulson, Standing Firm in Spiritual Battles. So this is a really strong one when it comes to kind of your anthropology, biblical anthropology, and how to how to deal with spiritual like evil and that spiritual warfare. So anyway. If you don't want to be on CCF mailings, you can come to the booth and take your card out. I won't be offended, okay? Because then you do have to write and say, take me off the list. (laughs) You're going to start getting some stuff, okay? So I'm going to actually ask Todd. He doesn't have to come up. I'll go to him. But just to to grab one of these. And the Lord's providence, he's going to choose the person that received this. Right, right, Todd? That's right. Okay. Okay. Uh, Lois Harris. Okay, Lois.